Hey, welcome everybody to week two of our summer journey through the New Testament book of Romans. This amazing letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, a group of Christians who were living, working, and worshiping in the city of Rome. Uh, a first century city that was not just the capital of the Roman Empire, but was literally the epicenter for the civilized world at that time. And as we discovered last week, this letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome was very different from all the other letters that Paul had written to all the other New Testament churches like Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Corinthians, all of those. And what made this letter different was the fact that Paul did not start the church in Rome. In fact, he had never even been to Rome. And when you read the other letters that Paul wrote to churches, you see Paul deals with issues and things that are specific to those churches because he planted them. He pastored them for months and sometimes years, but he had not done that with the church at Rome. So when he writes them a letter, it's a very general letter. He just focuses on the basics of Christian doctrine, of what we believe as Christians and how we should behave as Christians. And so that's why the theme, the big idea, the main point of the book of Romans is the gospel message, this incredible message of the gospel. But let me ask you a question. Do you know what the gospel message is? I know you've heard that term, gospel this, gospel that, but do you know what the gospel message is. If I were to hand out, you know, note cards and pens and ask you to explain the gospel, could you do that? Could you define what the gospel message is? Now, I know some of you, kind of smart aleck, could go, oh yeah, I could do it. I'd just write down good news because that's what the gospel is. And yes, the word gospel does mean good news, but can you explain what the good news is and why it's good news? If you can't do that or you're unsure of that or maybe you're not a Christ follower, you're just checking this stuff out and you always wondered, what do Christians mean when they say salvation and getting saved and the good news of the gospel? Well, you've come to the right place because in a single paragraph in chapter three of Romans, Paul explains and defines everything we would ever need to know about the gospel. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're in Romans chapter three, beginning with verse 21. And between verse 21 and verse 31, Paul will define for us the good news of the gospel. He will explain to us the miracle of our salvation. Now, if you've been following along this past week with the reading plan through the book of Romans. And by the way, if you missed last week, you're like, what do you mean reading plan? If you make sure you download the Cedar Creek Church app, we are reading together through the New Testament book of Romans. And every morning when you wake up there on your app is a passage of Romans for you to read. And if you've been doing that, you know that after Paul introduces himself in the first half of chapter one, he immediately turns to and focuses on the problem of our sin. How our sin has separated us from God. And on our own, 
We are under the wrath of God. And for two and a half chapters, Paul is just hammering away on how bad we are and how bad sin is. In fact, you were probably reading sometime this week and got the feeling, man, the city of Rome in the first century, not that different from America in the 21st century. And after pounding away at sin for two and a half chapters, in verse 21 of chapter three, Paul turns a corner. He turns a corner to give us the good news. And in the first two words of verse 21, Paul says, but now. Yes, we're full of sin. Yes, sin separates us from God. And yes, we are due for receiving God's wrath. But now might be my two favorite words in the whole Bible. And as we dig into this power packed paragraph, we're going to learn four keys to our salvation. The essential elements of the gospel message. Four things I want us to focus on today. Number one, we need to focus on the key words of our salvation. The key words, because words are essential, right? Words are the tools by which we understand ideas. Words are what help us explain concepts and truths, right? And nowhere is that more true than when it comes to God's Word. Right, because if you remember uh, two weeks ago when I was talking about interpreting the Bible, one of the things I said to interpret the Bible correctly, it's paramount that you define key words, that you understand what these words mean. And so to understand salvation, there are three key words we all need to understand. And all three of these words are found in verses 24 and the first part of 25. Notice what Paul writes. He says, and all are justified freely by his grace, God's grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, there's a lot of great words in just that verse and a half, but there are three that are crucial. The first essential word you need to understand is justified. Justified. Paul uses that one word seven times in the first three chapters of Romans. He talks about being justified or justification. Justified is a legal term. It's a courtroom term. It means to be declared not guilty, to be acquitted, not because you didn't do it, but to be acquitted because of extenuating circumstances. Think justifiable homicide. You've heard that before, right? When a person has justifiable homicide, it doesn't mean they didn't kill the person. They did kill the person, but they're acquitted because of external extenuating circumstances. That's what it means to be justified. Not declared not guilty because you didn't do it, but to be declared not guilty because of something else that happened. Second key word, redemption. Redemption. Redemption is actually a financial term. It's a, it's a transactional term. And there's two ways this word was used in the first century. One is in the area of slavery. Unfortunately, slavery was rampant, woven into the fabric of the Roman Empire. In fact, almost half the people that lived in the Roman Empire were slaves. 
And in Rome, downtown Rome, there was a massive slave market where every day slaves were bought and sold. And the price paid for a slave was called a redemption. That was the money, the amount you paid for that slave. You paid a redemption for that slave. And if you paid the redemption, that means that you could either set them free or you could kill them or you could make them work. You own them. They were your property. And so this idea of a redemption is a price paid for a slave. The second way it was used is in the area of hostages when people were kidnapped, which interestingly was fairly common in the, in the Roman Empire in the first century, especially for wealthy Roman citizens or Roman politicians. Often people would kidnap one of their family members or child and hold them for a, a ransom. And the term redemption was used in the amount paid to free that hostage. That was a redemption. So that's what the word redemption means, a price paid to, to set somebody free or to have power or control over another person. Third key word, atonement. Atonement was actually a religious word that literally meant satisfied, to be made right. If someone was made right, if a debt was satisfied, that was atoned, an atonement had happened. Because see, God is a just God. And because of that, he cannot just simply choose to forgive our sins. He cannot just, you know, act like they didn't happen. He can't just forgive us because he's just. There has to be an atonement for our sin. In fact, there's a great picture of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus is that really thick book in the Old Testament that has all the laws and rituals and, and all the ceremony and stuff for the nation of Israel. And in Leviticus chapter 16, God gives the nation of Israel something called the Day of Atonement. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for atonement was kapor. You may have heard of Yom Kippur. It's still celebrated today by Jews. It's the day of atonement. But what God told the nation of Israel while they're roaming around in the wilderness before they go into the promised land is that one day every year on this certain day on Yom Kippur, the high priest would call all of the people together and he would bring out two goats. And while in the presence of all the people, one of the goats was slaughtered, was sacrificed. Their throat was cut and their blood was shed. And then the second goat, the high priest would symbolically take the sin of all the people in the camp and place his hands on the goat and symbolically put all the sins of all the people for the past year on that second goat. And then that second goat was led out way outside the camp into the wilderness to be released and to be lost forever. Guess what that second goat was called? Scapegoat. You ever heard that phrase before? That's where that comes from, the day of atonement. This, you know, we gotta blame somebody, so let's blame this person. And that's what atonement is. Making right, a debt satisfied. And so now you can see why these are key words to our salvation because once you understand them, 
And once you can start putting them together, then that's going to lead us to the second element of our salvation, and that is the explanation. An explanation of our salvation. Well, if those are all the pieces of it, how does it work? And that's what Paul does in verses 21 through 25. The first thing Paul does to explain salvation to us is he starts with our need for salvation. Notice verse 23, a familiar verse to many of us. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, if you've been reading in Romans, you you know that Paul talks a lot about Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, the people of God who had God's law and the Gentiles, everybody else who did not have God's law, who were apart from God. God's law. And so Paul is saying, you know, Jews, you have the law, but you've still sinned and fallen short. Gentiles, you never had the law, but you still have sinned and fall short. He's saying everybody, everybody needs salvation. It's interesting to me that Paul uses two different verb tense in verse 23. He uses both a past and a present verb tense. When Paul says, all have sin, that's a past tense verb, right? It's in the past. It's already happened. And when Paul uses the verb fall short, it's present tense. It's an ongoing thing. We've all got sin in our past, and we are all continuing to have sin, and we'll continue to deal with it all of our lives here on earth. What's interesting to me is both of those verbs are athletic terms. Like the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans were all about sports and competition. And so Paul speaks their language using these sports terms. The term sin is an athletic term, which is weird for us because we think of it as just bad things we do, but it's actually an athletic term. It's an archery term. It's the name term given to an arrow that misses the bullseye. Any arrow that's shot and misses the bullseye is said to have sin. That arrow is a sin arrow. And it doesn't matter if you miss the bullseye by a quarter inch or if you miss the whole daggum target. Either way, that arrow has sin. And said so Paul says, all of us, right? Jews, you think you're close to the sinner because you got God's laws. And, and uh, Gentiles, you think you're far away from God because you didn't even know there was a God. But the truth is we've all missed the mark. And that term falling short was used to describe something that could happen to a runner in a race. If the runner began to lose steam, lose energy, lose speed, and begin to fall behind the other runners, it was said that runner is falling short. And Paul says, look, both of those things are true for all of us. We've all missed the mark. Some of you maybe are closer to bullseye than the others, but we've all missed it, and we're all falling behind because we don't have what we need. Paul tells us not only that we we all need salvation, but guess what else he tells us? He tells us we can't earn that salvation. Notice verse 24. Paul says, and all are justified, remember that word, justified freely by his grace through the redemption, remember the price paid, that came by Christ Jesus. 
For me, the power in those words in verse 24 are not just these key words that are in there, but for me, it's just the fact that Paul wrote these words, right? Like if anybody could have earned salvation, it's gotta be Paul. Paul spent the first half of his life following every law, every jot, every tittle of the law. He perfectly, he was a Pharisee. From the moment, you know, he was a child, he did every ritual, followed every rule. He never broke a commandment. He, you know, he was a Jew among Jews, right? He, if anybody could earn it by following the law, it would be Paul. And then after he encounters Jesus, if any Christian has ever worked harder and accomplished more for God, it can't be anybody other than Paul. Planning churches, writing two-thirds. Paul had it covered old school and new school. If anybody deserved to be be saved because of what they've done. It's Paul. And Paul says, no, no one can earn it. So if we all need it and none of us can earn it, how do we get it? Well, look at what Paul says, verse 25. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Remember the goats? Sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. And then don't miss this, to be received by what? What does it say? To be received by faith. Two things I don't want you to miss in verse 25. One, that salvation may be free, but it ain't cheap. Salvation required the shedding of blood, the atonement for sin. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter nine, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. That's why the people in the Old Testament were constantly sacrificing animals. That's why you see all that blood in the Old Testament. They were shedding the blood of animals for the remission of sin, but they knew that that was just a symbol of the ultimate shed blood of Messiah. Right? The people in the Old Testament didn't think that the lambs and goats and doves that they were sacrificing would save them. They were looking forward to the day they knew when Messiah would shed blood and save them. And the second thing I don't want you to miss is that Paul says this salvation is received by faith. I think there are two mistakes we make today when it comes to this topic of faith. One is to assume we don't have enough. I don't have enough faith. You see all these other people with all this faith that looks so strong to you and you go, I don't have enough faith to be saved. But it has nothing to do with the size of your faith. That's why the Bible says if you have faith of a mustard, a tiny mustard seed, you got all the faith you need, you can move mountains. I think the second mistake we make is to put our faith in our faith, right? To somehow think we are earning our salvation by having this unbelievable strong faith. Can I just say this? You are not saved by faith. You are saved by Jesus. You are saved by the person and work of Jesus. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Jesus. By the way, the Greek word for faith does not mean believe. When we're talking about faith, when Paul's talking about faith, he's not talking about believing in, he's talking about trusting in. There's a difference in believing in 
and trusting in. Almost everybody believes in God and a whole lot of people believe in Jesus, but you're not gonna see a whole lot of people in heaven. The Bible says the devil believes in God and trembles, right? But you're not gonna see the devil in heaven. I believe in Hitler, but I'm not a Nazi. I believe in Stalin, but I'm not a communist. What's the difference? Commitment, trusting in Everybody's got faith. You got faith. You can't live without faith. You're trusting in something every day. When you came into your campus today, you had faith that that chair would hold you up when you sat down in it, right? When you turn on your car to drive home today, you have faith that you're not going to get hit by a train or a bus or have a car crash. You, You have faith. The question is not if you have faith. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? What are you trusting in to save you? Bottom line, salvation comes by grace, blood, and faith. Salvation comes by the grace given us by God, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and received by faith in him and his finished work on the cross. That's salvation in a nutshell. That's the gospel message. And so the question that comes to my mind is why? The why of our salvation. Why would God save us? Why would God do this? And let me just be real honest with you. I have no idea. I simply cannot explain why God would save us. It makes absolutely no sense. Why would the God of the universe who is completely self-sufficient, who needs nothing from us, can get nothing from us. Why would God save us? Now, I know you say he saved us because he loved us, but why does he love us? He saved us so that he could be in relationship with us for all eternity. But why would God want to be in relationship with us? He doesn't need us. Why did God save us? Because. That's it. That's all I got, right? It's like your preschoolers. Sometimes you ask them, well, why did you do that, little Johnny? And little Johnny says, because. And you're waiting on the, the rest of it, right? Right? You think there's a comma after because. Little Johnny put a period there. I did it because. Why? Because, right? That's the best I can do. But listen, while I can't answer the ultimate why behind God saving us, I can tell you why he did it this way why this was God's plan, because that's what Paul tells us in verse 25 and 26. Notice, Paul says he, talking about God, he did this, he saved us to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, we had, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Now, that's like, that's like one of those typical Paul in Romans, thick, like, I gotta read that five times, right, to even try to understand it. But there's two things I want us to focus on. The two main reasons why God saved us this way, why this was his plan of salvation. One, he did it to deal with past sin. Paul said, in forbearance, He left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Whose sin is he talking about? 
the people in the Old Testament, right? The people who lived before the cross, right? Paul said that these, you know, people ask me all the time, well, the people in the Old Testament get into heaven. How do they get into heaven? How could they put their faith in Jesus? Jesus hadn't even been born yet or died on the cross. How are those people in heaven? Because if you read Hebrews chapter 11, it clearly tells us that those heroes of the Old Testament are saved. But what you realize is they are saved by faith, not through the sacrifice of goats, sheep, lambs, and doves. Right? When they were doing these sacrifices, they were recognizing that one day, their sins would be paid for. That's why I love that word forbearance, right? You ever heard that word before? Those of you that have student loans know that word. You know it well, right? You put it in forbearance. That means the debt is still owed, but you don't have to pay for it right now, right? It's gonna be paid for somewhere down the line, but it's not having to be paid for now, and that's what the Old Testament was all about. All those sacrifices were symbols pointing towards the day when their sin in the Old Testament was put in forbearance, that debt would be paid on Calvary's cross. Uh, the second reason that, the uh, second thing I want you to see is why God saved us this way is he did it to deal with present and future sins. Notice Paul says he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Who's he talking about? All of us who live AD, who live on this side of the cross. Because just as the people in the Old Testament put their faith in what would be done sometime, we on this side put our faith in what has been done. Which by the way, that's why the symbols were given by God in the New Testament church are not sacrificing goats and lambs and doves. Our symbols are bread and juice, the broken body and the shed blood looking back at what had been done. The Old Testament looking forward, we're looking back. That's what baptism is all about, identifying ourselves with Christ's death and his resurrection. Our symbols look backward. The Old Testament, their symbols look forward, but they all look to the same moment in time when our debt would be paid. And I love this last line of verse 26. Paul said he did this to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Look, don't miss this. Not only those who came before the cross and those who came after the cross, but God saved us this way through Christ's death on the cross so that he could be just and the one who justifies. What does that mean? It means that at the cross, Jesus was God's representative and our representative. As God's representative, justice demand the shedding of blood, that sin be atoned for, that it couldn't just be ignored. And yet, as our representative, Jesus paid the price, atoned for our sin. Listen, that is why the doctrine, the theology of incarnation is so important. You know what I mean by incarnation? That Jesus wasn't just some part of God or just some son of God, but it was God literally in the flesh because he needed to be fully God and fully man to play both parts 
at the cross. To be fully God and certainly worthy of accounting for and demanding justice for our sin. And yet to be fully human. To be our substitute on the cross. That's the why. That's so important. God forgives us our sins, not because he's some soft-hearted, kind old man. He forgives us because he has a reason to forgive us. And that reason is what Jesus did on the cross. And then finally, number four, the fourth thing I want us to focus on is the results of our salvation. What are the results of our salvation? Now, obviously, the results of our salvation are freedom from our sin, purpose for our present, and a promise of eternity with Jesus in our future. And we talk about that part of salvation a lot, what salvation does for us. But there are some other results that should come from the way that God saved us. Three things Paul said our salvation should result in. First, he said it should result in the death of pride. Notice verse 27. Paul says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. Paul said, look, it makes no sense for you to look down on others who don't live up to the moral standards or behaviors that you have. It is stupid for you to be comparing your righteousness with others because none of us were saved by righteousness. That's like a poor man winning the lottery and then looking down on other poor people for being poor. You're like, what did you do to earn all that money? Nothing. You say, well, I bought a lottery ticket. Well, when it comes to the gospel, you didn't even buy the ticket. God bought the ticket, won the jackpot, and then gave it to you. Who the heck do you think you are to look down on others? That's why you hear me say all the time, our good works, our living morally pure lives, it's not the route to our salvation. It is the result of our salvation. We do the things we do and live the way we live as followers of Jesus out of gratitude and belief that he always has the best in mind for us. Let me say it this way. The more you really understand your salvation, Christian, the more humble you should become. If you're struggling with pride, you might wanna check what your faith is in for your salvation. Second thing Paul said should result from our salvation, not only the death of pride, but the death of prejudice. Notice verse 29. Paul says, after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. He makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. In the first century church, the biggest divide was between Jews and Gentiles. And they were always kind of a rub, right? The, the Jews believed that the Gentiles needed to act a little more Jewish in order to be saved, right? They need to be a little better behaved. They need to follow the law. They probably should be circumcised. They need, they need to be a little more like us in order to be saved. And the Gentiles were looking at the Jews and going, these bunch of legalistic, moralistic, they don't know nothing about salvation. There was always this rub. Guess what? 
The rub's still in the church today, people. It ain't Jews and Gentiles. Now it's Democrats and Republicans, right? Because I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. You can't be a Christian and vote Republican. Are you freaking kidding me? If you think that, you don't understand salvation. You don't understand the gospel. The more you understand your salvation, the less demanding you will become that other Christians think, act, and vote like you. Salvation should result in the death of pride, the death of prejudice, and thirdly, Paul says, the death of presumption. The death of presumption. What what do you mean? What do you mean by the death of presumption? I, I mean that since we are not saved by the law, then it doesn't matter how I live. I don't need to follow any moral standard. I can live the the way I want to. Since I'm not saved by the law, it doesn't matter what the law says. Paul calls this presuming upon the grace of God. Notice verse 31. Paul says, well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law, live any way we want to? Of course not. In fact, the only way we have, it's only when we have faith Do we truly fulfill the law? And I can tell you, I see a ton of this in our churches today. It's this idea, well, you know, when I was 12, I walked down the front of the church, shook the preacher's hand, prayed a prayer, got baptized. Now I got my ticket to heaven. I got my fire insurance. I'll just live however I want to live. And Jesus, I'll see you when I get there, but I'm gonna do life on my terms. And and if you think that salvation gives you the freedom to live however you want to live, you either don't understand salvation or you don't understand sin. Because see, Jesus' death on the cross freed us from sin, not to imprison ourselves again in sin. I get it, sin's fun. If it wasn't, it'd never be a temptation. Nobody would ever say, sin is fun for a while, but eventually it ends in pain. Eventually it runs our life off a cliff. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. He wasn't saying behave in a certain way so that I can love you. He said, look, because I love you, I've given you these boundaries, these protective boundaries, these guardrails, so you don't run your life off a cliff. This is an expression of God's love. The truth, the principles in here work. I know they don't make sense. And in today's culture where we're told, you know, none of this this matters. Just live by your feelings. Just go by whatever feels good in the moment. And it does feel good in the moment, but it is hell in the end. And Jesus said, I saved you not so you could live in hell and one day get to heaven. I saved you and I give you these principles out of love so that you can live in the sweet spot of purpose and meaning right here, right now. That church is the good news of the gospel. That is the heart of our salvation. Now look, I I understand you probably feel like you've been drinking from a fire hydrant over the last 40 minutes and you're like, I couldn't even write all this down. Look, I get it. I felt like a college professor trying to do a whole semester in one lecture. But here's what I want you to take away with you today. 
Whatever you got out of understanding the gospel and salvation, understand this. The gospel always, always demands a response. And not responding is a response. It is a rejection of the gospel. So my question is, what is your response today gonna be to this gospel message, this truth of our salvation? Maybe for some of you, it is to step into it for the first time. Maybe you did grow up in the church and you went through some rituals and thought, I'm going to heaven, I can just live however I want. Maybe today, your next step is your first step to receive by faith, freely, the atoning work of Jesus Christ for your sin and freedom to live the life you were created for. Or maybe for you, Christian, it's a time to take an honest gut check at how you've been looking at others. How you've been responding on Facebook or to people on the other side of the political aisle or people whose behaviors don't measure up to your standard of behaviors. I don't know what your response is gonna be. I just know God brought you here today for you to hear his message and to give you a chance to respond to it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, in my feeble attempt, I've done all I could do to try to make clear your eternal truth. And as I'm reminded of these truths and studying this week and teaching them today, I'm overwhelmed by your grace. I'm overwhelmed by your mercy. I don't know why you did it, but I'm glad that you did. And so Jesus, I want you to search my heart. Start with the pastor of this church. Search my heart. Search my attitude. Because I know, Lord, there's so many ways I'm living with pride. I'm living with prejudice. There's so many ways I am presuming upon your grace. And so convict me, Holy Spirit. Grow me and stretch me today so that I live for your glory and your honor more tomorrow. It's in your name I pray, amen.